You're listening to On The Way, a podcast for the Center for Bible Study. I'm your host, Max Botner. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. We are excited to share our newest episode with you. We're actually wrapping up our first series on the podcast, the Why We Love Scripture series, and it's kind of fun to close the first chapter of this book that uh, kind of opened up and with not really a sense of where it's going. And it's been fun to just enter into this journey. And thanks all for joining joining me on it, on the way, as it were. Um, but I wanted to end this series with an episode on the letter to the Hebrews, because I just think it's such an important, such a beautiful, such a rich theological text. And to do so, I am excited to bring on my friend and colleague, Dr. Madison Pierce. Dr. Pierce is Associate Professor of New Testament at Western Seminary in Holland, Michigan. Um, So actually really close to where I used to live for the past few years. We just missed kind of being neighbors of of each other. Uh, Prior to joining the faculty at Western, she was on the faculty at TED's Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And she is indeed a Hebrews scholar. Her published dissertation, phenomenal book, is entitled Divine Discourse in the Epistle to the Hebrews, the Recontextualization of Spoken Quotations of Scripture. Highly, highly commend this book to you. She's also done other books as well. If you're interested in a Greek reader, you want to read some Didache and uh, the Epistle of Barnabas. She's got a Greek reader for you, which looks really great, as well as some other um, really awesome uh, edited volumes. So link to Dr. Pierce's author Amazon author page, which you definitely want to check out after the episode. And with that, and uh, without further ado, we'll jump into our episode. All right. Well, welcome everybody back to the podcast and welcome to Dr. Madison Pierce. Madison and I met, uh, what was it? I don't know how many years ago now. It feels like six or seven years ago, maybe like at a British New Testament conference, mm-hmm. I think was the first oh, time we met. It was. I was trying to remember yeah. yeah, if it was Son of God or if it was BNTC. No, it was a BNTC. But... And I actually remember our first conversation because I was all engrossed in Davidic stuff and and, yeah. I, and I brought it up to you about my Davidic stuff and you're, you shot back, well, I don't think Hebrews is really doing much with it, like, or is it interested in it? And I was like, yeah. what? Oh, like, so it was that first moment of like, that was our first interaction together. But I just remember I'm like, oh yeah, she's sharp. She's, she's a good scholar. This is going to be, so we, our relationship developed from there. We had further conversations. We've uh, yeah, yeah had a chance to chat at a bunch of conferences and different events and stuff like that. But because we're talking about Hebrews today, and Madison is a Hebrews scholar, among other things, you definitely want to pick up her book on Hebrews. Uh, yeah, I thought she's the ideal person to have for the conversation today. So I was so delighted that you said yes, uh, Madison. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for being on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Max. It's great. I always enjoy spending time with you, but always happy to talk about Hebrews too. So this is a great opportunity. Yes, good. It's a win-win. Um, so yeah, I yeah. thought we, just to introduce you a little bit to our listeners, um, would you mind just giving us a, just a quick background of kind of your your journey in faith and what brought you to biblical studies? What, what's that been like for you? 
Yeah. Um, I originally grew up in Texas. I'm sure that my accent at some point in this conversation will betray me. I might throw in a <laughs> y'all here and there. Um, though I, though I'm, I'm really from an area in Texas where people have a thick accent. And so when I go home, they're like, you're not from here. I'm like, oh, I am. <laughs> um, but yeah, I grew up in Texas and I became a believer when I was around 13 or 14. Um, my parents had been raised in the church, but we weren't really going to church as when I was a child. Yeah. And that was around the time I started attending youth group and stuff like that. Um, and very quickly, I really felt a pull to teaching. Mm. And there were some questions about what that would look like for me as a young woman, particularly in the denomination that I was in. Um, and so I found myself feeling really called to teach to the extent that I was trying to be creative to find how do I do that, mm. but in ways that are faithful to what I am hearing God is, is allowing for me and stuff like that. But I felt really wayward. So at this and, time, um, at this time, would you say then you, you were like more of a complementarian when it comes to women in ministry and stuff like that? I, I mean, I wouldn't have been able to use that word because I didn't know there were options. Okay, um, you okay. know, I was basically told this is what the Bible teaches. And got so it. I thought this is what I am. And so when I got to undergrad, which I went to Washtenaw Baptist, which is in Arkansas, mm-hmm. um, I started to, I was working in music and try, still kind of trying to figure out like, how do I be faithful to what I feel like God is calling me towards? Mm-hmm. I started to hear through the grapevine and the underground Baptist networks that there might be some other options for how we could understand the New Testament and scripture and stuff like that. And alongside that, um, and through a series of absurd events, ended up switching my major. It really was the case because I was sick that I couldn't sing and do vocal performance, which is what my major was. So I was just like, oh, I'll switch my minor in Christian studies to my major mm. and and I'll just do the music stuff, you know, whenever I get better and everything. But I ended up in this biblical studies class on it was Theology of Paul. You're we reading Jimmy Dunn's enormous book, oh, on yeah. Paul, which I have yeah. you know somewhere behind me right now. Yeah. And we were studying, you know, anthropology or something like that. I was like 19 and I was like, this is everything. Like, this is exactly (laughs) where I'm supposed to be. And so I, I don't know what the exact timeline was in my head, like how I remember it looking back. It was like instantaneous. It was like, I had the book and I had one class and I was like, I'm going to be a biblical studies scholar. That's cool. And so because I suddenly had another model too, you know, to that mm. point, the only people I knew that taught Bible were pastors. And I didn't feel like that's what God had on the horizon for me. But suddenly I knew these professors and I saw, oh, there's something else I could do to teach and to be engaged with scripture. Nice. And so um, that kind of started me on that trajectory. So that's cool. um, to maybe zoom ahead a little bit, you know, more or to move a little faster. Sure. Um, yeah, I went to seminary. I went to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and then went to Durham to do my PhD um, in the United Kingdom and uh, worked on Hebrews all along the way. And yeah. yeah, I'll stop there and let you jump in. Yeah, that's awesome. No, that's really cool. Just hearing a little bit about your your story and so many things I'd love to even unpack in that because I think it's, it's so interesting. But um, 
I guess the moral is anybody that can read a massive tome on Paul and think, yeah, this is cool, um, <laughs> is on a track for biblical studies, huh? Because there aren't many of us. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yes, yeah. if you can be excited about that nerdery, then yeah, this yeah. too can be your... <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Well, that's great. So, uh, gosh, I think the in, the entry point for us for Hebrews, or one entry point that I think would be really interesting to hear your thoughts on, are just kind of the unknown nature of this letter, more like a, it's a homily, really, my word of exhortation, the, the writer says, but there's been so much speculation in the church about, well, who wrote Hebrews? I love quoting, uh, well, Origin quoted by Eusebius, only God knows. Um, but like, could you share with us a little bit about like different ideas people have had about authorship of the book and the situation of the book? Because the first place it shows up in the manuscript tradition, P46, it's a collection of Pauline letters. It has the inscription to the Hebrews, which kind of communicates we know who it's written to. But yeah, do we? And and what are the, the implications of the different situations? So yeah, would you mind just kind of uh, unpacking that a little bit for us? Yeah. Well, everyone always wants to talk about the authorship, so we can start there. I'm yeah. sure if I didn't talk about it, that you'd get all kinds of questions. Yeah, right, right. Um, <laughs> so yes, from my perspective, the author is unknown. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we can get towards you know, uh, or we can investigate the likelihood of some of the candidates who have come along the way and all of that. There's basically no way of saying this is the author of Hebrews with the evidence that we have at present. And so a lot of times what I'll do is kind of differentiate with my students between authors who have known writings. Mm. So you have people like Paul and Luke and even Clement of Rome is sometimes Mm. put forward. And so these are people that we can say, okay, They've been named by the early church to have some kind of role in Hebrews. Paul, of course, is a a major candidate in early Christianity. Luke quite often is named not necessarily as an author by himself, but as an author or at least a a player with Paul. Right. Um, So like Luke is interested in Pauline theology and decides to write it down so that it can be preserved or something like that. Or he has Paul's sermon notes and decides to write them. Um, and then Clement has, it, this is a really interesting thing about the reception of Hebrews. Uh, first Clement has quite a bit of what looks like Hebrews, yeah. um, or at least has a lot of quotations that are also in Hebrews. Yeah. And so Clement is also sometimes put forward. So with these authors, because they have writings that we can look at, um, you know, they, they're in kind of a category of their own. We can say, okay, does the style, does the theology, mm-hmm. you know, X, Y, Z, does that match what we see in Hebrews? And generally speaking, I would say that, no, there, right. there are really significant differences, especially yeah. stylistically. Yeah. Um, but even just the, yeah, the emphases and some of, I think, um, some of what we might talk about as we talk about, like, what are the big, big things for the author of Hebrews? Um, that some of that stuff will become really apparent, I think. Yeah. Uh, one thing just for our listeners who maybe don't know, Madison's mentioning First Clement. This is a letter that was written okay. right at the end of the first century, maybe early second century by a leader in the Church of Rome named Clement. And it's it's funny, it's a letter he writes to the church in Corinth, which kind of matches Paul's excoriating style. 
Um, but there clearly is some relationship between this letter and Hebrews. So this kind of allows us to see the earliest reception of Hebrews in Rome, which is also interesting, right? Because the writer at the end mentions being in Italy. So there's a kind of that, you know, aspect of it. But I'd be curious to hear your thoughts here on why not Paul? I think there's some good reasons why not Paul based on the style of, of Hebrews. But I'd be curious to hear like in your mind, like what are the what are some of the big reasons why we could say it's probably not Paul? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so the the major thing really is just that this style is completely different. If you look at the um, the Greek and really even the style of argumentation, mm-hmm. I mean, even um, my pastor or our, our church is preaching through Hebrews right now. Ha ha ha. Nice. So delighted. Um, <laughs> and uh, my pastor is he loves Paul and, you know, would preach on a Pauline letter anytime the lectionary gives him the space to do so. And now he's working through Hebrews and I I mean, he's enjoying it, but, you know, he's remarked to me, like, this is really different, you know, Mm -hmm. just the way that the author makes his points. And I've heard a lot of people who, particularly those who kind of, who really enjoy Pauline literature, they talk about Paul being very linear. Mm. Sometimes we probably wish he was more linear. Yeah, I was going to say, sometimes you feel like you're stuck in one of his arguments and you're never getting out, but yeah. I know. But for them, even Paul Paul feels more linear than Hebrews, which feels very cyclical. And I can see why they would say that because he's at various points is kind of introducing something in part, but he's going to come back to it. Mm -hmm. He hints at a theme, but then he's going to develop it. Right. And yeah, they're, it, it's really different. And yeah. again, in the the style, the vocabulary, yeah. all of yeah. that is very different as very well. Very different. So, yeah. 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 I know. I totally agree. It's, it's, it does feel very different. Do you think also, because another thing that sticks out to me is the writer of this sermon at several points kind of distances him or herself from that apostolic, like first generation mm. in some ways, or you get the sense like, I'm thinking of like in chapter two, like the warning passage, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of that first warning Mm -hmm. passage, the way that writer speaks feels very unpauline to me. Like Paul is very much, I am an apostle. And, you know, whereas this writer's talking more about being faithful with the tradition kind of in some ways. So that's another thing that's to me feels very unpauline in some ways, or it's just different. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's right. So, um, Obviously, Paul wasn't somebody that walked with Jesus. And so the, the passage that you're talking about in Hebrews 2, he says something like, um, you know, we've heard from those who heard from Jesus. It's kind of the, so um, a lot of times the idea is that this would be a kind of second generation group of Christians. And yeah, Paul wasn't somebody that heard directly from Jesus in a historical sense or right. like in his earthly life. But of course, it's really, as you say, important to Paul that his experience of Jesus on the road to Damascus and his kind of elevation to the status of apostle that that's preserved, especially in the Corinthian correspondence. And so this, this distancing is, is really interesting. Yeah. 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 Cool. Yeah. So, okay. So we can kind of rule out many of the known authors, but one that's been thrown out there that it's interesting. I think it was 
uh, Adolf von Harnack, who maybe first suggested Priscilla. What do you think about the idea that Priscilla or a woman might have written Hebrews? Is that something we can entertain or, <laughs> or, or does the masculine participle in chapter 12 rule that rule that out for us? Yeah. Oh, you're close. It's chapter 11. Oh, chapter um, 11. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 Um, so I personally, so the, my cheeky answer to this is that, you know, again, we can't really know, but yeah, you're right. Um, I think it is von Harnack or Otto von Harnack that puts this forward first and others, I, you know, propose maybe Aquila and Prisca together. Um, but my kind of cheeky response to that is if Junia can become a man, then I think this participle probably can, uh, you know, have some movement too. It's like totally literally one Greek yeah. letter. <laughs> I totally I feel you on that. That's a good answer. I like that answer. That's cool. Yeah. So maybe yeah. Hebrews was written by a woman. We don't know. Okay, cool. So we don't know who wrote it. What about the situation? Because uh, I think one of the most common ideas that we have, and this goes back to the early church, but certainly in Christian preaching today is, well, this letter was written to Jewish Christians to kind of persuade them you need to get leave, like leave Judaism. Uh, so does like, which I think we both would disagree. That doesn't make much sense of the letter, but, um, but what, like, what are some scenarios that people put forward and how does that that uh, that changed the imperative of the of the sermon in your mind. Yeah. So the situation that you're referencing, it's it's very common for people, especially in modern scholarship, to say that the author is cautioning them against a reversion to Judaism. Mm -hmm. So they have actually made a profession of faith in Christ, but that they're thinking about returning to their old Jewish ways. Right. And now in a, and I think a, um, a more recent sensitivity toward anti-Jewish readings and mm -hmm. things like that, mm -hmm. what we realize is that some of the evidence that's put forward for that view is really unhelpful because um, the author calls, says, don't be lazy or sluggish. He says, you know, don't turn away from the living God. And these phrases are not indicative of adherence to Jewish religion right. at all. Right. In fact, quite the opposite. In in um, Hebrew Bible, turning away from living God is turning to idols, you know, the gods of stone and straw and mud. And right. so, um, yeah, I think this view needs to be quickly retired, um, yeah. but it is the dominant one right now. Alternatively, we don't have a lot of evidence for what what the if there is some kind of polemic or issue or something that the author is actually trying to address so my kind of like big news or like our big idea for hebrews is that the author is saying god has done incredible things in your midst so live in light of that yeah and the question about okay what is this this community experiencing that makes that the message, that's the part that's really mysterious. Yeah. So some of the ideas that have been put forward are, yeah, again, that idea of referring to Judaism. There's, of course, a really dominant thread or, well, maybe not dominant, but there's a consistent thread in the letter that these are people who have experienced some kind of hardship, yeah. maybe not, you know, significant physical persecution, but there's been some kind of opposition with the government. Mm -hmm. You know, they've had their property seized. Some among them have been imprisoned. 
they've suffered, but not to the point of shedding blood, right, you right. Know, that kind of stuff. Right. Um, that's from Hebrews 12. So that would be an idea. There are some thoughts about this addressing some kind of theological issue. Um, mm-hmm. Angel worship is, you know, an idea that's been put forward. Yeah. Um, something about the deity of Jesus, you know, these, yeah. So, yeah, oh, lots and of different We could talk more about, yeah, yeah. And some priestly stuff too. And yeah. I can stop now if you want to interject, but I think that yeah, no. maybe be a segue to some other stuff. Yeah, that's helpful. Cause I think as we get into the letter more or the, the sermon, um, that our listeners will get a sense of why the message is conducive to different potential situations. Like as we talk about yeah. priests and temple and stuff like that. One one that I saw more recently, and I think this is uh this fits with the attempt to put forward other readings that are not explicitly anti-Jewish is the idea that Hebrews is responding to the destruction of the second temple in some ways, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I'm persuaded by, but it's an interesting thought experiment. But um, there was kind of an attempt to read Hebrews as a response to the catastrophe of Rome's destruction of the second temple, which I think is good for for us to remember, like historically, we often think, and I go through this with my students every semester, we often think Christianity is like this new thing. It's this new religion. It's not connected mm-hmm. to Judaism anymore. But the reality is if we read Acts, they're in the temple every day, worshiping in the temple. And they're yeah. they're not only worshiping in the temple, they're having religious experiences in the temple. They're seeing visions in the temple, mm-hmm. as you would expect. This is God's house. So there's there is temple polemic also in Acts, which is it, it's tricky. I think it's mostly directed towards temples to other gods. But yeah, it's it's I don't know. It's worth considering, like that 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 uh, Hebrews is part of a Jewish dialogue about being in communion with the one true God and um, the way we approach God in worship. And the fact that we're focused on the heavenly uh, tabernacle, which we'll get into, doesn't necessarily mean it's a polemic against the, the earthly tabernacle. What do you think? So if, if, if you're going to give somebody just an overall outline of the sermon, like, all right, you're coming to Hebrews. It's obviously a complex text. As you said, it's not like a linear argument. I mean, it does move forward, but it establishes pieces that are going to get picked up more and more fully. Like he keeps, you know, this is Melchizedek guy, but he, you know, you're, you're too dull in understanding to really uh, <laughs> care about this Melchizedek guy. And then you kind of like, I am. And then, and then he gets into it later. Right. So like, <laughs> yeah, and then the, he's like, wait, a, oh, actually, <laughs> I, I, mean, I actually think it's kind of genius as a preacher. Like you throw out these little breadcrumbs for people and then you like kind of challenge them, like, are you really ready for what's coming? And then you give it to them. You know, mm-hmm. it's kind of an interesting rhetorical strategy. Um, but yeah, so like, how would uh, how would somebody that's fairly new to the book, like, what would be a good kind of way of thinking about their way into it and seeing the overall picture of the sermon? Yeah, thankfully, the structure of Hebrews, from my perspective, is actually quite simple, at least in its like macro structure. Yeah. Um, so I would say that there are three three main parts. Um, or three parts in an epistolary ending, if you prefer. Um, So the first section, well, actually before, you know, talking about what the sections are, it actually might be helpful to talk about where the sections break, because in Hebrews, the author has these two kind of hinges from my perspective. There's these two places that's in Hebrews 4, 11 to 16, and in Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. And these are two places where the author really turns to the audience 
and gives them this series of exhortations. And there, if you look at the language of these, it has a kind of parallel structure. It's like A, B, C, C, B, A. And so even when you compare the two, they look like they're intentionally crafted in conversation with each other. And so I think of those as these kind of, yeah, transition sections for yeah. the two main or the three major sections. So that would mean that he, the first section of Hebrews is from Hebrews 1, 1 to that hinge, um, but through even through the hinge. Um, and I talk about that as being the household of God, because a lot of the imagery that you see there is familial imagery. Mm. It's about the father and the son and the siblings. It's about Moses serving in the house of God. And even that bit in the wilderness, which happens to be centered around this house that they keep carrying around and tearing up and putting that, you know, <laughs> and yeah. carrying and yeah, all that. Um and so then you have this hinge section again, 4, 11 to 16. And then that transitions into the second section that centers around the tabernacle or the worship space of God. And that goes all the way through the second hinge, which is, you know, 10, 25-ish. And, and then we have the third part of Hebrews, which would be from 10, 26. Mm -hmm. to the end at 13.25. And again, chapter 13 can kind of be segmented off in its own kind of section. Yeah. Um, And we can talk more about that if if you want to, but yeah. Yeah. uh, Chapter 13, sometimes don't people treat it sort of like the final summative, like the pararatio, to use the term, kind of like bringing it together, bringing the message together for a final exhortation kind of thing. Um, Is that that how people, you've seen people kind of treat it? Yeah, um, now that Hebrews is being accepted as a kind of unified composition, um, for a long time, the ending was thought to maybe have been added later. Oh, okay. Um, and even to kind of give it more of like a letter, that, feel, like give it more of a letter feel type thing. And even a Pauline letter feel. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. So, yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. But, yeah, but it's definitely the place where you have these more concrete ethical instructions. So to contextualize it, you know, with a letter that people are more familiar with, it'd be the difference between, you know, a lot of times Romans is thought of as like Romans one to, or yeah, one to 11 mm-hmm. is like theology. And then 12 to 16 is like application or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of how people would understand Hebrews is like one to 12 is the theology yeah. and then 13 is the application. Obviously, may, okay. uh, you know, that's a little reductive, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but that makes sense. And that's helpful to kind of think about it that way. Yeah, cool. Well, I love that. Yeah, that you've laid that out for us and that people kind of see like they can see the structure and the movement is really geared around. Uh, you highlighted a couple of what we would call the warning passages, right? Like these strong exhortations. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you sense like within the structure that it seems like a kind of ebb and flow between exhortation and then like theological argumentation. So there's like warning passages kind of dispersed throughout the letter where the writer continues to, yeah, exhort the audience to uh, to perseverance, to faithfulness, and then builds on the theological argument. Do you see that kind of as well? Yeah, absolutely. So there are five passages that are generally identified as warning passages. And they occur about, you know, at least in our Bibles, about every chapter and a half chapter, you know, to two chapters, something like that. Um, And I think there are some smaller 
passages along the way that really, if, if we wanted to pile up some exhortations yeah. um, and didn't want to stick with that good round five number, yeah. that we could add some more. Um, but yeah, so the author is kind of weaving this in and out. And someone like George Guthrie has written a book on the, um, the structure of Hebrews. And what he did is basically argue that it moves between, um, oh goodness, what is the word, E word he uses? It's instruction and exhortation, basically. Yeah. I, I, okay. I think I'm missing George's word, but yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Maybe we can just, since we are talking, we'll, we'll we'll talk maybe a little bit more about warning passages now, if that's okay. Um, yeah. So Hebrews is Hebrews is an interesting book, right? Like Hebrews has been useful for Protestants, it seems to me, for a couple of reasons. One, it has some really uh, amazing things to say about the deity of Christ, and so that's been a place people go. Hebrews one. And then also it was, it's always been useful for the the once the one-off sacrifice, right? Uh, <laughs> but one place where Pro where Protestants have always struggled with Hebrews is the warning passages because they seem to um, well they seem to suggest that one might be able to lose their faith or something like that. I mean that's the language that it's often put put in, and there's been a lot of discussion around warning passages in Hebrew scholarship. Uh, from yeah, that's clearly what it says to well let's consider um, the kind of rhetorical nature of it. So thinking about like someone like Craig Kester, who's done a lot of work on that. I, I would just mm -hmm. be curious to hear, like, how do you think about what the warning texts are going to do, are, are trying to do in Hebrews? And what are the theological implications of, of the warning texts in Hebrews? Yeah. Yeah. This is, um, this is one of the things that I get asked the most is like, well, how do I read these scary passages? And, um, and I think they're really important. And, that's, you know, and I will say just anecdotally, for a long time, I hated reading them because mm -hmm. I got asked about them so often. And I felt like, oh, these are not the like the most beautiful thing about Hebrews. But actually, now that I feel like I understand them better, mm. I, I understand how they fit within the author's message better. And I do love them. I mean, Hebrews 3, 7 to um, 411 is like my favorite. Oh, that's a Hebrews. really good. So that's a really good section. Yeah, I love that. That's cool. I love it. Um, and so I just, I feel drawn into them, even the Hebrew six passage, like, you know, I, I'm not afraid of it anymore. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. That's one of the tougher ones. I feel like the six one and maybe yeah. in 10 as well, but like yeah, the idea, right. the warning, yeah. right. If you've tasted the spirit and all these kind of things, uh, mm -hmm. I've seen so many people do exegetical backflips to try to explain how that's not a Christian actually. Like you've tasted yeah. it because you've been in the community that is experienced, you know, all this kind of stuff. It's like, ah. Pretty sure yeah. he's saying, you know, speaking to people who are Christians, or as we would say today, Christians. So anyway. Yeah. Yeah. You're giving a good introduction. It reminds me that I should probably say a little bit more about the, the content of those before I kind of explain how I read Oh, yeah. That, so, that'd be great. Yeah. Let's, yeah. let's, let's do that. Yeah. Yeah. And so the two of, that are probably of the most interest would be the, the ones that you mentioned in Hebrews 6 and in Hebrews 10. And so we can kind of focus in there in particular. Um, but if you want to double back to any of the others, by all means. Sure. So, um, yeah, Hebrews 6 is the one that people generally are aware of, even though I actually think Hebrews 10 is a little bit scarier. Yeah. Um, but the Hebrews 6 I, one I know is, what you're saying. Um, yeah. <laughs> they, um, you know, for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly 
um, or, you know, had tasted the Holy Spirit who have, you know, experienced the powers of the age to come, you know, things like this, I'm paraphrasing a little bit. Um, It's impossible for them if they fall away to be restored to repentance. Yeah. And so people and the read first, this the first and they, the first word by in uh, the Greek too for everybody verse four begins with adunaton so it's like impossible is that impossible. first word you hear yeah 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 so that's the emphasis like in unfathomable yeah. not gonna happen yeah, yeah. yeah and so people read this and they think I've wavered in my faith or that person that I know has wavered is is currently wavering in their faith. So does that mean that I have no hope of returning? Mm. And this can be really horrifying for people. So then, and then they get into these conversations around like perseverance of the saints, right. once saved, always saved. Right. And it becomes this significant source of anxiety. Yeah. Like if I doubt, like when do I cross the line over this, like to this impossible threshold where yeah. I cannot be restored to repentance? So as you say, some would understand this to be um, a kind of misunderstanding of what's being described, that although these people are described as having been enlightened and tasting the spirit and the goodness of the word of God and things like that, that they're actually not Christians. I was reading about this the other day, and um, there's a discussion about this being an indication of the author's uh, humility. That he's kind of saying, like, <laughs> I couldn't possibly know where someone actually is. That's great. Um, That's great. That reminds so, me of what Clement of Alexandria argued that Paul wrote Hebrews, but he was so humble. He, he, nef- he left his name out. <laughs> yes. He does. Yeah, that's right. That That's how much people love Paul. <laughs> um, on a side note, Origen, though, says that um, he finds it very unlikely that Paul wrote it because the author of Hebrews is less rude. Oh, that's fun. I like that. That's great. So, so yeah, so just to balance that a little bit. That's great. <laughs> we got to keep, keep Paul in his place. Um But so, yeah, that passage, you know, from their perspective is the author saying, though it might appear that somebody has been enlightened or this or that or whatever, they're not really. So there it's this kind of like misunderstanding. Others will say that it's hypothetical. You know, if somebody were to have X, Y, Z, there's no way they would fall away anyway. But if they did, they wouldn't. But if they did, they couldn't be restored, but they won't. So it's okay. Right. And so. These are, these are two really common views and it's yeah. probably sufficient to kind of trace the history of interpretation there. Yeah. But I Good. think that the reason that this is so hard for us to grasp and that it's hard to come to a comprehensive reading of these texts is that we are kind of reading Paul into Hebrews mm. because Paul, to some degree, and actually to some, I think also to some degree, this is a misreading of Paul also. But we think that Paul is very fascinated with justification when you enter the covenant mm-hmm. and when you become a believer, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're thinking, okay, the author of Hebrews is wondering about that too. And so when he's talking about being saved or enlightened or whatever, he's talking about some past moment. But in Jewish theology, really, I mean, I, I'm not aware of an alternative tradition, but please correct me if I'm wrong it's pretty universal that there's going to be a single day of the Lord and a day of judgment that comes in the future. And that's when people are saved and redeemed and rescued and all of that. 
And so on that day, in my understanding, at a point when someone has been enlightened, has tasted this goodness, if they were to stand in the face of God and to say, no, thank you, then it would be impossible for them to be restored to repentance because, and this is the next part of that passage, which is also super scary. It says that if, if they were to do that, they would be um, exposing Christ to public shame and crucifying him all over again. Right. Um, or something like that. Yes. And so, but in the, in the message of Hebrews, the, sacri- the one sacrifice of Christ is completely effective and Christ is perfected. Right. He can't die again. And so if you don't want that sacrifice for yourself, then you are not going to get another. And so this is about when this is kind of reckoned. So it's not about like on Tuesday I was in and on Wednesday I was out. And so now I have this like anxiety about where I stand with God, about whether maybe on Thursday I can be back in again. Yeah. But yeah, I can stop. I hope that makes sense. That does. Yeah, I know that's really helpful. And you're giving me fresh things to even to think about uh, about the, the that passage. Um, one of the things you said too makes me think of end of chapter nine when you're talking about the return of Christ. He's not coming back for sin this time, yeah. right? Because the sin sacrifice has been yeah. made. So, you know, for our, our listeners, uh, what Madison's referring to, right, is the the once we're gonna get into this more in a minute, but like the the once for all mm-hmm. sacrifice of Jesus that's made, it's been made. Uh, so there's, we, we can't, as he says, bring him back down, uh, reincarnate Jesus, have him live, die and rise again. Um, that's what would be necessary if you reject the sacrifice that's already, already been made. Yeah, that's, that's good. The other thing that I'd love to hear your thoughts on, one of the things that's really helped my thinking about these warning texts is thinking a little bit about the rhetorical structure of how they're, how they play out. Because I see a, a dynamic in both six and ten of um, so there's the warning, but then the, the writer, as a good pastor does, points back to examples of the community's demonstrated faith in the past, yeah. and and yeah. then exhorts them that we know there are better things coming for you. So it's like, yeah, yeah. we're talking yeah. about the hypothetical possibility of people walking away from their faith. But we're doing this to kind of spur you. We're not suggesting you're actually going to do that. And I think that that's been a really helpful thing for me to think about that, you know, within ancient rhetoric, this is a kind of a standard move in some ways of arresting and then encouraging. And that seems to be primarily what the what this writer uh, homilist is interested in doing here. And actually, when we think about it in the Bible, we have examples in other letters like other Catholic epistles, think about like the Johannine text where you're actually are talking about people who have left. Hebrews is just talking about it hypothetically, but Paul, John, they talk about people that actually did leave. So in some ways that's, that's a little bit more um, difficult to, to grasp. Yeah. I had this note, this is kind of random. I have this note on my computer that's, um, like article ideas. And one of them that what I wrote down was apology to the audience of Hebrews. And for a long time, I was like, what am I talking about? And then I was working on something the other day and I realized what it was. It's the depictions of the audience are so negative in all (laughs) of our work. And and there's really only one or two sentences in Hebrews where the author actually is disparaging of them. Yeah. Ultimately, he's like, great job. Y'all are awesome. He says like two things. He says, you should be teachers. And I don't think you can get this Melchizedek stuff yet. 
but then he tells them about it. Right. The rest of it is like, we're convinced of better things in your case. We don't belong to those who shrink back. That's right. what he says at the end of 10. Right. It's like, and he's like, great job. I right. remember when you first became believers that you were doing this and you were doing yeah. that. And when you look at the stuff that they're doing, it's incredible. It's stuff that yeah. I'm not like I know, doing, right? You know? Yeah, that's yeah. so, I love that article idea. That's a, that you should definitely write that <laughs> up. That sounds great. Yeah, well, and um, I think one of the parts that's always struck me most at an emotional level about this sermon is actually in the end of the warning section in 10, where he points to their faith that they were visiting those in prison as if they themselves yeah. were there in the flesh. It's like this incarnational yeah. identification with incarcerated members of the family um, yeah. that I don't think you see to that degree and anywhere else in the new testament so yeah, yeah that's that's really great apology to the audience that's so good i love that <laughs> i love that yeah because um yeah that's, oh that's that's awesome um well that no i think that's really helpful and uh helpful for our audience to see that there there's actually more ways to read the warning passages than just to kind of take the the tried and trodden Calvinist versus Arminianist positions that we debate yeah. in Protestantism, that we can actually think more concretely about them in their historical context. And that that actually helps us make better sense of what they're what they're doing in the in the sermon. All right. Yeah. So I want to talk sacrifice and atonement. But before we do that, I'd love <laughs> to hear about uh, just if you wouldn't mind giving our audience a little bit of a snapshot of your work, your just your published dissertation. Uh, which focuses on prosopological exegesis. So you got to explain to us what that is. Um, <laughs> but just to kind of frame this up for our audience, Hebrews uses extensive quotations from the Old Testament. And this is something that uh, Madison and I share in common. We're really fascinated with how New Testament authors use Old Testament texts. And Hebrews is like a parade example of that. Um, mm -hmm. But what we find in really neat ways in Hebrews is an ongoing conversation between God, the father, Jesus, the son, the Lord, that's facilitated also through the Holy spirit, because the texts that are um, being reread are inspired texts. So when the author opens, you know, in many ways, God's spoken in many in various ways, God's spoken in the past through the prophets. Uh, and now he, he, alas, he speaks in the last days, he speaks uh, through a son uh, or by a son, sorry. Um, the initial expectation is like, okay, we're going to get a conversation between father and son that moves away from the prophets. But what you get actually is a conversation between father and son that happens in the prophets inspired by the spirit. So it's really cool. Mm. Like chapter one is just this amazing scene. Anyway, I don't want to do any more spoiler. I want to turn yeah. over to you because I want to hear <laughs> about your work and I want to hear about uh, prosopological exegesis and yeah, just give us some, give us a taste of uh, what you've done uh, in your scholarship. Well, for those who hung around after Max said prosopological exegesis two times, which is like the most terrifying phrase, I have so many people that are like, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, it sounds really scary. It effectively comes from the Greek word for faith right. or character. And so what I'm doing is trying to provide a kind of comprehensive reading of the quotations of scripture in Hebrews that are presented as speech. And they are presented as a speech of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Y'all might recall from your Christian theology that those three people or persons are rather 
important. Sounds very Trinitarian, very Trinitarian, Madison. <laughs> yes, this is why Max and I get along quite well. Um, but what's interesting is that the author of Hebrews reads these quotations from scripture and he does something new with them. He reads them in light of a new character or a new faith, so a new prosopon. And so prosopological exegesis is a basic is basically rereading a text by identifying or clarifying a character mm. that you know that's sort of new. Mm-hmm. And so I mean a, a good example of this would be um, uh, in Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, "Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool to my feet." Well. In early Jewish literature, there's this conversation, you know, the Lord says to whom? Well, who's the other who's Lord? Who's the other Lord? We, right. of course, yeah, we, of course, see this represented in the Gospels. And Max has an excellent section on this in his thesis. Um, if I'm working on on those passages in the Gospels, I'm always quoting Max. Yes. Helpful, um, helpful also if you need to put yourself to sleep. It, it, it's known to cure insomnia. <laughs> no, my book. not at all. Not at all. It's very good. <laughs> um, and so the author of Hebrews says, Hey, that Lord's Jesus. And he moves on. Another kind of example of that would be like Psalm 22, which of course we know in the gospels is quoted by Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why be forsaken me in, in early Jewish interpretations of that. It's just a kind of righteous sufferer. Sometimes it's a Davidic righteous sufferer, but sometimes there's this kind of persona. Yeah. It's like, um, it's like a, there's you know, a would you say it, like this way? It's almost like there's a script with a role description, and there's kind of like the oh, question totally. like who's going to play the role? Like almost like what the Ethiopian eunuch asks uh, Philip on, on the yeah. on the way, yeah. right? Like who who's the, who's yeah. this prosopon? Who who's this this person? Yeah, okay, good. That's that's great. Exactly. All right. Yeah. So, and the neat thing is that although this technique sounds scary, although it seems like something that we don't necessarily see, although I think it's all over the New Testament, it actually models the way that we read. Because when we're reading scripture, we're asking these questions like, wait a second, who is that talking about? Or what is this about? I don't totally understand. And so these are actually observations on the part of interpreters Mm. that are kind of face value. I mean, Mm. no pun intended, I guess. Um, (laughs) Kind of they're they're saying the basic things that you do when you read a text or ask the kind of who, what, when, where, why, and here the emphasis is on the who. Mm. Um, And so what Hebrews does is uses this technique over and over and over again to characterize God. Mm. And God as Father, Son, and Spirit. And so as you say, Max, there is this conversation in Hebrews 1. There's these seven quotations that the Father speaks. Most of them are to the Son, but some of them are about the Son, Mm. maybe to the angels. Mm -hmm. Um, In chapter 2, the Son speaks to the Father. Mm -hmm. And then in Hebrews 3 and I think 4, the Spirit speaks to the community Mm. And that cycle repeats again in the second section of Hebrews, you know, going back to our previous conversation. And then in the third section, all bets are off, but there are actually fewer quotations of scripture. And there's some other kind of interesting ways that the author plays with the themes and stuff in that third section. So, but we have a really defined pattern in those first two sections of speech. So. That's beautiful. I love that. So to see this this ongoing Trinitarian conversation in the text that's being brought yeah. up. Um, one of the things that I've sometimes pointed out to people that just like 
this kind of blew my mind. In fact, sometimes when I teach out of Hebrews one to people, I just have them close their eyes and say, okay, let me transport you to the divine throne room. Jesus is coming as the resurrected, fully God, fully human to mm. be enthroned and listen to what the father says to the son. And mm. um, it's just amazing. Like you get, I mean, son's chills down my spine. Like you get God, the father saying to the son, calling the son Lord. So using a text, like, yeah. I mean, that's pretty remarkable. Like people look at the text where it mm. says, God, you're God. And I'm like, yeah, a lot of people can be called God. I mean, obviously <laughs> it takes on a greater sense when we're applying it to Jesus, but, yeah, yeah. but like in, um, in verse 10, you at the beginning mm -hmm. Lord, uh, founded the, founded the earth, right. Or established the earth and all, everything else will pass away. So this is God, the father speaking to the son, God, the son, um, about their act in creation. And it's not just like yeah. reflecting on it in like kind of in a hypothetical way. No, this is the son who's taken on our humanity and has brought our humanity before the father. And now they're like sharing in mm -hmm. this moment together. I don't know. I just find that really cool. And then in chapter two, the son now is the human who shares our flesh and blood is confessing us. End of Psalm 22. We get like the beginning of the yeah. Psalm 22 lament in the gospels. Yeah or at least in Mark and Matthew. And then we get the, the end, the mm -hmm. celebration in, in, in Hebrews. And then the son's exactly. like confessing us back to the father uh, as, as our brothers and as his brothers and sisters. I just find that like, I don't know. It took me a while to see it, but like when I did, I was like, Oh my gosh, I can't unsee that. That's just so yeah. beautiful. Yeah. So yeah. Well, amen. <laughs> yeah, amen. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Are there any other places in Hebrews that you just feel like, like, could you give us like maybe an example or two from your work, like where you're looking at prosopological exegesis and it's just like something just pops in the text and you're like, wow. Mm. Well, I mean, one thing that probably the biggest push that I made or, or the kind of most um, creative reading that I provided in my thesis was the one in Hebrews 3 and 4, which I told you is my favorite passage. Yeah. And that's because using prosopological acts of Jesus and, you know, just various kinds of work on intertextuality and things like that, um, I proposed that the way that the author characterizes the spirit pushes us to understand the spirit as the speaker of the Psalm 95 quotation through that whole oh, section. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. Because if, if you look at the English versions, then you see that um, English versions have supplied God when that quotation is repeated at a couple of places. That's actually only implied in, in the Greek, or, or it's not actually, I mean, it, he is implied in the Greek. It's just the third person personal pronoun. Um, but for clarity, the English versions put God. Oh, and of course, okay. the spirit is God. Right. But because we tend to assume when a text says God and doesn't clarify otherwise that it means God the Father. Right. This creates a little bit of a problem in how we read this passage, because the spirit is the one who speaks to the community in these passages in Hebrews. And he's, it's his words. Um, from Psalm 95 that are warning them to continue on. And so I think that talking about um, characterization, which is a part of what I try to do with Prospological Exegesis, because it's about characters. And as you say, kind of yeah. scripts and casts and things like that, yeah. to think what is characteristic of the spirit in mm. Hebrews. Mm. And it's 
and it, there are a few things. So one, he's the guy who first spoke Psalm 95, you know, 10 verses ago, then he might still be the one speaking it, you right. know. But it's also the case that elsewhere in Hebrews, when the people reject God, it's the spirit who responds, mm. or at least that's how he's depicted. So like in, in Hebrews 10, in the other warning passage, it says that if you continue to sin, you... Um, profane or make common the blood of the covenant, trample the son of God underfoot and outrage the spirit. Mm. And so it's the spirit who is portrayed as having this kind of negative effect, you Mm -hmm. know, to their actions. And that fits with other places in scripture, like um, in Isaiah 63, which I argue is kind of an intertext here um, where they they grieve the Holy Spirit. This is, of course, where Paul is pulling in Ephesians 4, I think. It yeah. may also have implications for how we understand the blaspheming the Holy Spirit text in the Gospels, and mm. so on and so forth. I could go on and on, but I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm totally I love on this. a roll now. <laughs> no, I love that. That is so cool. And one of the things, too, that um, that uh, our audience members might, might not be aware of in um, is that what's one of the among the things that's really cool about what Madison is sharing is there's been a lot less attention on the spirit in New Testament scholarship. Mm-hmm. So there was a big push like a few decades ago towards discussions of like a high Christology, something like uh, something like a Christology that would be conducive to later a Trinitarian Christology. But there is very little conversation about the Holy Spirit in all of those dialogues and a lot of scholars do tend to treat the spirit as more or less um kind of just an emanation of of god but not fully not fully a person uh, understanding again that person is an analogy when we're talking about the godhead but but really not paying that much attention to the spirit so this kind of a reading strategy is really pushing the conversation forward within the academy to um think more about the spirit's role so that's really cool that's awesome thanks Thanks for yeah, sharing. Yeah, and fun fact, this is the only place in scripture where the Holy, you know, in the New Testament and in scripture where the Holy Spirit quotes scripture, you know, speaks it. There are other places where the Spirit is said to speak or to reveal. Or, so he has this kind of communicative or, you know, verbal, you know, communication function. Yeah. Sorry, I'm rambling a little, yeah. but not this. This is distinctive. And it does That's actually cool. appear in First Clement. So that's another thing that oh, First Clement and Hebrews oh, have in common. Cool. That's awesome. Some fun facts drop for you. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) We got some more Clement knowledge here. That's awesome. Um, Very cool. Yeah. So um, definitely get Madison's book and read it. You'll be uh, you'll you'll be glad you did. And this kind of conversation gives us as readers, again, another way of just thinking about the deep continuity of our canon of scripture and Mm -hmm. the 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 Jesus being really the 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 bridge of the canon and the way we see all of scripture together. Hebrews is really helping us read our Bible as all interconnected and seeing that Jesus is really at the center of it all, Father, Son, and Spirit, the God that's revealed in the text. So yeah. So we encourage you take up Hebrews and uh, engage in some, some prosopological exegesis or see, see, uh, just (laughs) have your eyes open for the conversations that are taking place within the text. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. That could be a really rich uh, a reading strategy. Um, all right. So here's another big topic to get into here. Hebrews (laughs) is the place where we get all this language about priesthood, 
sacrifice, atonement. Uh, listeners from last week's episode will have heard me ramble on about Leviticus. So they have, and if you're, if you haven't heard that episode, you may want to go back at some time and listen to that uh, because I don't know if you'd agree with this, but I think it's very difficult to understand Hebrews without Leviticus. Um, oh, amen. Yeah. Okay, good. Good. We're on the same page there. So, yeah. so yeah, we, we get all this conversation about the priesthood of Jesus, about the sacrifice of Jesus, about the category of atonement, particularly Levitical or sacrificial atonement. And mm -hmm. um, I think it's hard for people to get their hands around this. Like, I think Hebrews can be reduced sometimes in church to bumper stickers, like Jesus is our high priest, meaning, yeah, he's in heaven advocating for us. Okay, great. Jesus is our sacrifice, meaning our sins are taken care of, but the, uh, he died on the cross, you know? Uh, so it'd be interesting yeah. to just kind of hear your your thoughts around this. Maybe we can kind of kick this around a little bit. Um because I I think this is true for you, but someone that's influenced my thinking a lot on Hebrews is David Moffat uh, during my time in, of course. in St. Yeah. Andrews. And, you know, David really focuses in on atonement stuff. And that got me all excited about this, this stuff to begin with. So, yeah. Anyway, I'd love mm -hmm. to hear some of your some of your thoughts. Yeah. I mean, by way of introduction, I mean, one of the big uh, obstacles for me when I'm teaching my students about Hebrews and, and sacrifice in the New Testament in general is the fact that the ways that we use a lot of sacrificial language yeah. or, or what we think is sacrificial language in our everyday life, but we're not actually referring to the sacrificial system yes. that takes place in Leviticus and is, of course, alluded to in Hebrews. And so um, when you say like, oh, I made such a big sacrifice of my right. time, whatever, right. you know, the, those kinds of things are, you know, obviously um, people talk about making the ultimate sacrifice, all yeah. of these kinds of things. Yeah. What that does is it reinforces this idea that these are merely kind of spiritual metaphorical terms. Mm -hmm. And it removes it more and more from the imagery that the readers of Hebrews would have actually had in mind. That's good. And so I think that that creates this like really significant distance, even if we say like, oh yeah, yeah, that's about the Levitical sacrificial system. But unless you're reading Hebrews and hearing it about him offered once for all and seeing an altar drenched in blood, sorry, yeah. um, you're not getting the imagery. Right. Um, right. And, and so, what's striking about the examples you gave too is when we make sacrifice, we, we tend to have sacrifice in a negative category. So it always involves, yeah, that's true. it's all about loss, right? Um, yeah, that's right. And um, yeah, we think about it as negative. So the sacrificial system for many Christians is something that Jesus came to liberate us from, right? Yes, amen. Yeah, yeah so that's, that's what so a lot helpful. of people think about. So yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, that's so helpful. You're right. That's not the way that, that they would have understood this. This is their means of worship. This is mm -hmm. how they are approaching God. And it's a gracious gift that God provides them, right. that he gives them these parameters for how they can approach him and love him. Mm -hmm. And we think of, we have negative associations with ritual. We have negative yeah. associations with the sacrificial system and all that. Hebrews talks about the sacrifice of Jesus. We get this outlined already mm -hmm. in like the opening in like three, four kind of sets the table, but then it gets, you know, really drawn out later on in the sermon. What is Hebrews 
what is Hebrews thinking about when he says sacrifice of Jesus? We've mm. got the day, this day of atonement ritual that's in the background. We've got covenant sacrifice that pops up. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. I mean, we, we've even gotten the, the red heifer sprinkled in, you know, the sprinkling of blood yeah. mixed in there. So yeah. yeah, just take us through. You don't have to yeah. go through every detail, but broadly speaking, what is Hebrews thinking when, when we're talking about the sacrifice of Jesus? Because I think for most people, it's Jesus got nailed to a cross. That was the sacrifice. And Hebrews is just mm -hmm. using a lot of cool imagery to talk about what that event did. Yeah, that's super helpful. So, I mean, I think we could think in two different directions. We could think about what, how the sacrifice is depicted and what it kind of affects for us. But we could also think about how all the different images that the author is kind of pulling in. So in a sense, it's almost like retrospective and perspective with the yes. sacrifice. So starting with the perspective, because I think this is actually something that your readers would, would need to know about. And this is, of course, influenced by David's work, um, David Moffat. Yeah. Um, when the author of Hebrews is talking about the sacrifice of Christ, from, from my perspective, and I, I think from yours as well, um, although it's typical for us to imagine the sacrifice of Christ taking place on the cross, it seems far more likely given the ritual imagery or the, the imagery around sacrifice and offering that's in Hebrews, that the author is imagining Jesus bringing his blood into the heavenly tabernacle and making his offering there as the yeah. great high priest. Yeah. And so that's a little bit different. And, and how that relates to the sacrificial system is that I've heard David say the sentence so many times. It's not the slaughter of the animal that's the offering, but the you know the pouring out of the blood. So, a sacri if you were to kill a cow, just randomly, you know, in a field, uh, an Israelite were to do that, that's not a sacrifice. Right. Even if they were like, you know, I'm going to do something with that cow, that's not a sacrifice. Right. It's it. There's a complete ritual that has to take place. Right. And so, likewise. Jesus dying on the cross is not the end of the story. Yes. Of course, he has to rise, ascend, and then, according to Hebrews, to enter the heavenly tabernacle and to spill blood at the, in the altar. And so that is the once for all offering as depicted by Hebrews. Yeah. And with that, he uses imagery from a, a large range of, of sacrificial um, or, or sacrifices from. Uh, scripture. So as you say, there are allusions to the Day of Atonement, which we would expect. That's a really significant thing. And that's a high priestly thing. That's mm. like the thing that the high priest can do that no other one can do. Mm. Jesus could have just been a regular old priest if he wasn't going to do the Yom Kippur sacrifice, maybe. Right. He alludes to the red heifer ritual, which is something that probably dealt with corpse, corpse contamination. Um, so the idea know, the, from the, last the, week, the, just to remind people from last week, we talked about oh, yeah, the, the body, uh, the body can be polluted, ritually polluted by by dead bodies. Uh, and so this ritual from Numbers 19 uh, is a ritual people go to to purify themselves from that ritually. That's what Madison's referring to. Yeah. yeah. Oh, good. I'm glad they're they're up to speed on. Well, um, I don't know. It's just me. It, it's, unfortunately, it was just me talking about it. So I don't know how up to speed they are, but. <laughs> oh, I bet it was great. Um, but yeah, so that um, it, he alludes to the tamid, which is like the daily offering that it would have taken place, which I mean, that's like business as usual. You know, right. this isn't like your Easter service. This is like your morning prayer. You know, daily, that, yeah. that's the way. And I and I and I, I make that um, analogy to say that, like, 
in some ways, we would think of those as being insignificant. But of course, as we know, it's our daily worship that also really shapes our experiences of, of, of God. Um, and then the covenant inauguration. And this, of course, really makes sense. So he's alluding to the Exodus 24 beginning of the covenant with Israel, um, where the people are sprinkled with blood and Moses meets with God and all of that. And the author of Hebrews draws connections with that ritual and Jesus as well, which, as I said, it makes sense because that is probably a big part of what we see in the Last Supper. Um, And of course, Jesus is inaugurating a new covenant through his sacrifice. And so I'm probably forgetting some, but I, I mean... This is a broad yeah. range of things. Yeah. yeah. Um, and really the one offering that isn't clearly referenced as something that Jesus is kind of wrapping up within his sacrifice is the Thanksgiving offering. Mm. Um, and as a side note, in Hebrews 13, yeah. um, the author So the idea of, commu- to, of communion is the Thanksgiving, like you're sharing the meal with God kind of thing, mm-hmm. right? Uh-huh. Yeah, there's a yeah, there was a, a praise offering or a fellowship offering, Thanksgiving offering. Um, there are a lot of different names for it. Um, that's the one that's not necessarily connected with the sacrifice of Christ. Um, but in Hebrews 13, he says, um, "Let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise." Mm-hmm. And so that's something that continues, that persists, and yeah. I, I love that. That's so. really cool. Yeah, no, that's really cool. Oh, that's rich. So, um, so the big idea here is if we're thinking about sacrifice in terms of ritual progression, and we're just reading actually the, what Hebrews describes, which is Christ ascending in bodily, you know, his resurrected body into the heavenly space that, um, that it encourages us to see his, his death as part of a ritual process, but that culminates in his, um, Mm -hmm his ascension, ascension, enthronement, presentation in the heavenly tabernacle, which is, which is cool. And, and, you know, one thing that, um, Martha Himmelfar brought up in, um, she, she did a a paper or one, an essay in the atonement, uh, volume that we, that we published. Um, she brought up that actually Hebrews is the one Jewish text that talks about bringing blood into the heavenly temple. So there there are other texts that have similar idea, you know, but she says, yeah, Hebrews is like, this is kind of a novel idea in some ways, like actual blood is going there. I do wonder if when G- when uh, when the seer in Revelation sees the lamb um, approaching the throne mm-hmm. in, in Revelation 5, if that might not be mm-hmm. a, a, a similar angle to the same scene yeah. where he's yeah. coming to. Yeah. Um, but anyways, yeah. And I think that that's such a, that's a, a helpful way of thinking about sacrifice um very new like it took i think it takes us a while to get our minds around it because we've just had it beaten into our minds theologically that the cross takes care of everything the cross is the sacrifice and uh to see like actually no there's more there's more to it and it all goes together the cross and resurrection ascension right um that uh yeah i don't know for me that was really exciting to see that and be like oh yeah atonement's a bit bit more broader this process of being made one with god it's not just about a a transaction that happens on the cross 
Well, and I think that, I mean, forgive me, but we need to blame Paul for this again, because (laughs) he talks about, you know, I'm going to preach nothing but Christ and him crucified. Right. And the cross stands for Paul as this representation of the work of Christ. But, but again, this is, it's not really Paul's fault. It's our misreading of Paul because he's using the cross to stand in for that whole process. Yes. But what we've done is we've forgotten that it's a stand-in, yes. that it's representative of all of Christ's work. Because of course Paul thinks that Christ has risen, that his, that his ascension yeah. is essential to yeah. atonement, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, his his definition of the gospel is that he's raised according right. to the scriptures, but right. whatever. No, that's so, good. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, it's a, it's a reductive kind of theology that we've, that we've got. Um, yeah, so yeah, yeah, I think it, it can feel really scary for people like to minimize the cross, but it, it's, it's not intended to be that it's to right. say the cross has all of its importance and significance and it, it, yes, center of our theology. We're happy to be cruciform. Yeah. But it's not the whole story. Yes. Yes. And the whole piece about being cruciform. So I think with Paul, to your point about misreading Paul, Paul's really big on the theology of the cross, which is kind of actually more epistemological than it is strictly soteriological, meaning like <laughs> he's wanting to help communities see their whole life in the world through the lens of the cross to, to live out yeah, cross-shaped lives good. together, which is about self-giving, mm-hmm. um, you know, building one another up um, and, and recognizing that like we are it, we do inhabit dying, decaying bodies that need to be raised from the dead. So, so that's all tied together the, the 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 cross piece. But to your point, he's always looking forward ahead to the resurrection, also. And as he says in First Corinthians fifteen, if Christ isn't raised, then you're you're still in your sins. So it's all it's all tied together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's, that's good. good. That's cool. What do you so What do you think about the whole uh, priest thing, Melchizedek thing? What the heck is going on there? <laughs> Jesus is a That's Jesus a is a broad pri- question. Jesus is a priest according to Melchizedek. Like what? Um, yeah, no. Um, I, I'd love to hear just like some of your thoughts. What do you see going on in Hebrews? I guess Hebrews seven in particular. Mm-hmm. Order, order of Melchizedek. Why can't Jesus just be a another priest? Why can't he be a Levitical priest? Uh, right. So what's yeah. the deal with that? Uh, this is helpful because I'm actually preaching on this text in a few weeks. So this oh, will help good. me get prepared good, and just be able good. to. That's yeah. what we do. We help um, our guests on this. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So one of the things I've been thinking through this sermon a little bit, I'm thinking about how I want to start it. And um, I want to talk about the fact that we um, generally read the New Testament with our whole kind of picture of the story and or like our, the whole story in mind like we know how it ends and so right. we're not surprised when various things happen Melchizedek is an exception where people are like well wait, wait who yeah where um, is this what the yeah 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 but it, it actually it still fits because for the uh, the audience of Hebrews as you say they were like okay we know priests and w- hold on, wait a minute, you know, Mr. Author of Hebrews or Mrs., um, you know, you're saying that he's a priest, but he's not a Levite. And in um, 7, 14 or 15, he says it's clear that he's from the line of Judah. Right. And like, nobody's going to dispute that. Like, we, yeah, we know that. Right. Um, 
one of the few references to the Davidic right. line. Right. I was so, going to say that was sorry. my Davidic point. That, that was my Davidic <laughs> point there. <laughs> we both agreed. I was like, well, he, he, he affirms it, right? At least, yeah, yeah, 714. Okay, good. <laughs> um, so, but, but they, so they'd be like, no, 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 that can't, that cannot be. And so what the author does is he finds this alternative priesthood or this alternative priest. And this other priest who's not a Levite, who actually predates the Levitical system, Mm -hmm. and who, if we read, you know, Genesis 14 in this tradition, um, you know, Abraham meets and pays a tithe to, you know, a tithe like priests get, Mm -hmm. and also Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And as the author of Hebrews kind of capitalizes on, that means he's better. And so he's sort of setting this up. So it's like, it's not just that there's another priest around, but it's that there's a really good one around Mm -hmm. and we need to take that seriously. So there's a lot that I could say about why the author says, you know, this or that or whatever. And I think some of it's kind of complicated, but Mm -hmm. the too long don't read version effectively is that between Genesis 14 and Hebrews, a lot happens. Mm -hmm. Um, not least the fact that Psalm 110 gets understood in light of Melchizedek. I'm not entirely sure that the name Melchizedek was supposed to be there in the Hebrew. It could be just righteous king. Right. Um, and we see something similar in Qumran literature, but it's the Qumran literature that is key for Hebrews. Do you think Hebrews thinks that Melchizedek is an angel? Oh, I... Um, I don't know okay. because I think he's, I think he's ambivalent on purpose, like okay. that he doesn't name that because the connection or the kind of contrast between Jesus and the angels that he does. Um, and then he's like, but Jesus is like Melchizedek that could be confusing. Yeah. And so because in the Qumran literature, he's associated with the angels, but the author of Hebrews doesn't say he's an angel. It kind of depends on the extent to which we think those those Jewish traditions are uniform in presenting yeah. um, Melchizedek as an angel from okay. from my perspective. Sure. Um, I think I think that David um, and like Eric Mason totally disagree with me on this. Yeah. Um, but but I I think the ambivalence is on purpose. Um, gotcha. Yeah. So yeah. So but this alludes to the fact that in Qumran literature, Melchizedek becomes this really big deal. He's and he's been um, put in comparison with Michael, the archangel. Mm-hmm. He's releasing people from the debt of their iniquities. Mm-hmm. Um, at one point in 11Q Melchizedek, it says your Elohim is Melchizedek. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there's some interesting stuff going on. And so we don't know if the author of Hebrews knows those particular texts, right? but it seems very likely given the range of traditions that, kind of elevate elevate Melchizedek that he knows that there's some lore mm. so the way that I teach my students this is a silly analogy if you'll uh, forgive me I've, I've given it before um I think of the Genesis 14 Melchizedek is like Saint Nicholas and yeah. then the rest of the Melchizedek as like Santa Claus that's it's hilarious. Like I love that something that's great. that has yeah that's good <laughs> it has a historical truth like i'm not denying the historical veracity of melchizedek in genesis 14 
But Hebrew says that Melchizedek is without father, without mother, without genealogy. Mm-hmm. And I'm not personally comfortable with the rando that Abraham ran into in, in Genesis 14 yes. being an eternal being right. Um, right. for a lot of different reasons. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think that he's just pulling on this lore and yeah. hugging at it to say, to, or to use a comparison to say, yeah. Yeah, Melchizedek sounds pretty awesome. Yeah. The Jesus. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. And uh, the point too that, um, so what is the qualification for the priesthood that this alternative priesthood gives, right? Is uh, because Jesus isn't a Levite. And so he's not fit to serve in the earthly tabernacle, but this better priesthood that's, you know, connected directly to the the earthly priesthood. the qualification is to be able to remain there. And so Jesus is resurrected. So that's where a part of our, you know, our theology of the priesthood of Jesus becomes so powerful is he is fit to remain in the presence of the father um, ministering on Mm -hmm. our behalf. He doesn't go in just once a year in the earthly, he's in the heavenly and he's, he's there and his priesthood, he's qualified for it because of his resurrection. And, and therefore he is, yeah. He's perpetually our priest till we return. And I think, and I think that's something that speaks to just speaks to our, our journey of faith that when we're thinking about like just the struggles of life, remembering who Jesus is and where he is serves as kind of an anchor for us, you know, and Hebrews, I think really helps us see that clearly, maybe more clearly than any, any other book we have in the Bible. So Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. He always lives to make intercession for us. Right. It's like the other priests, there were points when they died. They couldn't continue because they died. I mean, this is like one of those things where there's so much of Hebrews that's like confounding. But then he also has these like super common sense things like, why can't they keep being priests? They died. They die. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very like, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so there was a time where that offering ceased. And so another offering had to be made for all the sins that hadn't been covered yeah. or purified by those prior rituals. And this yeah. explains why Jesus's offering is perpetual. Yeah. Because it, he never dies. Yeah. He can keep doing it and continually yeah. interceding for the past, the present, and the future. So cool. Yeah. So that's like the anchor of our hope, really, as, as Christians. That's really mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's funny too. <laughs> the once and for all thing I when I when I started reading through Leviticus in the Septuagint in the Greek translation, I started laughing because Hebrews likes the hapax, the once off language, one time, the one yeah. time sacrifice. And Leviticus of course uses this also for the day of atonement. Yeah. Once a year, once a year, once a year. And it's Hebrews is yeah. like, I'll, I'll, I'll see her once a year and I'll go once for all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's, it's really yes. funny. Amazing. Uh, yeah, it's good stuff. That's good stuff. Well, thanks so much for just the conversation. Is there anything else that we, that our listeners are going to email me about and chastise me for not covering? <laughs> <laughs> anything else we should talk oh, that's about? That's a good question. I don't um. I think we've covered the ones that I usually get randomly on the street or yeah, for sure. (laughs) Everyone's like, excuse me, excuse me. Do you know about Hebrews? No. Um, I think, I think that covers it. I mean, the one thing I'd want to add is that 
um, I, you and I have presented a, a pretty positive view of sacrifice and ritual. Mm. And, and so I hope that your listeners um, maybe reread Hebrews in light of that to think of the sacrificial system of worship. And because it's so common to read Hebrews as a polemic against the sacrificial system itself, yeah. that it's this kind of replacement ideology that the sacrifice of Jesus um, is better because it makes it so you don't have to do those worship things anymore. Right. The, and so when we think about them as worship, it's, it's like a negative really, kind of thing. A, a yeah. rather different. Yeah. 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 So well, anyway. okay. Can I get, okay, real quick, if it's possible <laughs> to do real quick, that, that also leads of me. Course, to, yeah. yep. So chapter eight, the new covenant discourse, when people, yeah. a lot of times, I don't know if you had this experience with students, but when I make the points that we've been making, people who know Hebrews flip to chapter eight and say, yeah, but new covenant, clearly the old covenant is being seen negatively here. I don't know. What, mm-hmm. what, what do you think about the, yeah. the movement from old to new covenant in Hebrews and how that's often taken? Yeah, and that people, in my experience, also capitalize on the kind of better language. But right. I think it's really important to say that better does not, it doesn't, necess- it doesn't necessitate a comparison between what is bad and good. It can be what is good, good to better, better, right? Yeah, that's yeah. what I go. So like, can um, you say it's like really great to ultimate kind of is what the- Yeah, argument. exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So wonderful to- amazing you know or whatever yeah yeah. so but the what i think is really important and this is actually something that i've been wrestling with and and i don't even think it's well represented in my book because i think it was still like coming to the fore of my mind when i was working on it is understanding the future oriented nature of what the author says about Mm. jeremiah 31 in the new covenant it's behold the days are coming Mm. says the lord and the author of Hebrews, of course, is quoting this as something that God is saying at the time that he's kind of inaugurating this covenant, you know, if we're thinking about the speech and all of that. So they're coming. Mm-hmm. And these will be days when you don't have to tell your neighbor, know the Lord for everyone mm-hmm. will. Yeah. But that's not my experience today. That's clearly future. Oh, and so yeah, so that's a mistake. At- Wait, if I'm uh, just to jump in here, so yeah, please, please. What you're sa- what you're saying, just so we're clear, because I think this is really helpful. The Jeremiah qu- Jeremiah quotation about having the law written on your heart, kind of like a is it Christine Hayes, the r- great rabbinic scholar, says a robo righteousness or something like that. Um, yeah, that yeah. that that is um, that's not fully actualized yet. Mm-hmm. That Hebrews says Absolutely. that's actually future in some ways. Okay. I think, think, yeah. Well, I mean, Hebrews just quotes Jeremiah, but the thing is that he only says one sentence to kind of like wrap up this quotation. It's the longest quotation in the New Testament. And he literally gives it one sentence. He gives Psalm 95, two chapters, you know, in English Bible, but he gives Jeremiah 31, one sentence, but here's the sentence. He says, uh, oh gracious, I'm going to mess it up off the top of my head. But he, he basically says that what is, growing old growing old or yeah. becoming old yeah. is gr- is coming near or you know is is drawing near to disappearance mm-hmm. it doesn't say what is old has disappeared right right yeah and so i think that that his one sentence actually mm-hmm. presses us towards this kind of inaugurated if you want to use that that yeah. you know established terminology mm-hmm. it's talking about it as being something that still is mm-hmm. and this is actually 
this is something I've been tossing around. We didn't talk a lot about the date of Hebrews and we probably don't have time to do so, but because but I, I don't have any firm conclusions on this. But this is one of the places where the idea that the temple is still standing makes more sense. Oh, okay. Because he's thinking of the cult and the covenant of practice as still being in effect, mm-hmm. that it hasn't disappeared, gotcha. that it's still here. And of course, this could be rhetorical, like looking backwards, like even though the temple is gone, like it's mm-hmm. not disappeared or whatever. But yeah. but but either way, okay. the old covenant for the author of Hebrews is not abolished. Uh-huh. Necessarily. Yes. It's yes. Drawing near to disappearance. Yeah. I like that. I like that. I think that's a really helpful way to think about it in a way that's probably more accurate to the historical situation of what the author's intending. Because it's always easy for us to look back on it, right? The situation later and say, Yeah. Well, 2000 years later, you know, we're still in this interstice called the last days. But um, but that's the that's the period within which this author's writing and thinking. So you kind of are like the new covenant, yeah, has been inaugurated, but the reality that the Jeremiah text is talking about hasn't really been fully actualized yet. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's good. And so that leaves space then, do you think, for for some appreciation of aspects like of the old covenant, uh, even though, yeah, even though one is living into the new covenant reality, um, I, I guess I'm just wondering... Would a would a would a reader of Hebrews still feel comfortable going to the second temple and worshiping in the second temple? My gut is yes. Okay. But I it's a yeah, we can't I, prove it. I know we that can't prove others it. yeah, exactly. But my my gut is yes, but it's because of some of the things that I've been trying to highlight in, in this conversation about what sacrifices are for. Mm-hmm. They're not just for the kind of cleansing and purification. So that's how they're kind of marketed. But if they were only for that, then we wouldn't have free will offerings and peace offerings and things like that. There's over the Tamid, like they're Mm -hmm. also for this drawing near to God and this, this ritual and worship and all of that. And I just, I can't, I, I would imagine that it would be necessary for them to understand that what it affects is different. Mm-hmm. That is not for the like uh, efficacious cleansing of their sin that's been accomplished. Right. But but there are other things. Uh, yeah. They continue no, to do so. Yeah. 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 So and it, and it also, I mean, my goodness, communion. We celebrate and participate in the sacrifice of Christ as yeah. often as we can. Yeah. And so I I would think of that as kind of an analogous thing. Like, yeah. are we sacrificing Christ? No, right. but are we remembering it and participating in it? Yeah. You know, depending on your tradition. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and so I would think that we'd have an analogy there. Yeah, so, that's good. Yeah. That's good. Well, that is quite quite a conversation. You give us a lot to think about. <laughs> I really appreciate it. I guess I'm gonna have to have you back on the podcast to find something we disagree about in the future because uh, <laughs> everything you said, I'm just like, yes, yes. You want? So. Do you want to fight about Davidic met- messianism? <laughs> Should we put that on the docket? <laughs> no, it's, it's too fresh for me. Still, I'm too emotional about now. Um, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, no, but um, thanks. Thank you so much for uh, for the time and just this is a real blessing. Hebrews is such an important book and. To have mm-hmm. somebody who's an expert in it just unpack it for us like that is really special. So thank you. We really appreciate it. 
Uh, thanks for having me, Max. And I appreciate it. you've obviously spent a ton of time in Hebrews and know it quite well. So it's been a blast for me too. So thank awesome. you. Awesome. Cool. Thanks so much. 